All right. Well, good morning again. Um, this past week, Pastor Rob and I have planned on me preaching sometime in September, um, towards the end of the September, so it was a little bit earlier than we anticipated, um, but that's fine. Um, I also had a uh, um, breakfast then on Friday morning with Tom Noon, and it was a good time of fellowship. And we just talked and, and hung out, shared each other's, you know, stories, what, what was going on in our lives, right? And um, just based on, you know, the Holy Spirit leading in that conversation, um, as we shared with each other, I just got alone by myself for about an hour that afternoon and was able to, to write down the content of this message, uh, the ba- basic themes of it, an outline, really, knowing that I was going to be preaching later in the month, so... Yeah, when I got a call late last night saying, you're up tomorrow, um, it, was, it was great just uh, praising God for, for that fellowship uh, that, that we all need um, with, with each other. You know, I'm, I'm excited about the young couples fellowship that Spencer and Lydia um, are going to be hosting. We need those times of fellowship. I mean, you guys are having taco night, you might even attract lost people, you know. <laughs> um, and, you know, the conversations that happen uh, in our time with each other are important. Sometimes at, at a fellowship like that, just in the corners, you know, two people are, are sharing what the Lord's been teaching them that week. Someone's sharing, they've been learning about Proverbs or something, and it challenges that person, and, and, and they're explaining what they don't understand, and it's a chance for us to just um, explain things together. So I absolutely praise God for his sovereignty and, and um, preparing all of us just to, to hear his word yet again today. Let me start out with a word of prayer again. Lord, we, we're going to be talking about prayer today, Lord. Um, and I pray that each of us, as Jamie said, would, would leave changed, would be drawn closer to you, would certainly be challenged in our faith and in our own prayer lives, that you would grow us closer to you in this discipline of prayer and our understanding of prayer and our trust in you and in our intimacy with you as well. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you were to be asked, what is the most difficult basic aspect of your faith, what do you think your answer would be? What is the most difficult aspect of our faith? And for many of us, it's going to be our prayer walk, our lives of prayer. We may think that the most difficult thing could be suffering, like we talked about last time, this basic of, of what do we do with the suffering in this world? But you know, it's, it's harder to listen to a sermon for an hour than it is to pray for just 10 minutes. And that tells us something about our restlessness and our, our inability to just be with the Lord and talk to Him. And that's convicting, I think, for all of us as we think about our prayer life and long. Uh, for more intimacy with the Lord. And Jesus says that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that righteousness. There's an answer there. We shall be filled. Ultimately, that comes in heaven, but may it increase as, as we're here on earth. And so, as we teach about prayer, we often ask, what is prayer? And the most basic answer that I often teach people is it's just simply talking to God. And that's, that's really a child's answer, isn't it? I mean, it's very simple. And we are called to have childlike faith. Um, but it's very simple. But I think it's maybe a little bit too simple because there's so much more to prayer than just saying it's talking to God. It seems that lost people can talk to God. We have examples of that in the scriptures. So I think of that it's, it's better defined, as we get, get a little deeper into prayer, as the aspect of having intimacy with the Lord. Prayer as communing and fellowshipping by faith with God. Prayer as communing and fellowshipping by faith with God is is our intimacy with Him. And of course it is by faith that we commune with Him here on earth. That's an important aspect of prayer because in heaven there will be no faith, there will be no hope. Faith will be sight, hope will be realized. There will be no prayers of faith offered in heaven. And faith is important, and I think it's important also to know that when we pray, that in one sense it doesn't take much faith 
to believe in God. It doesn't take much faith to believe in God. Jesus says, how much faith does it take? Mustard seed. One of the smallest seeds around. I think it's helpful to understand that in the sense that just like it doesn't take much faith to believe in the wind. It's there. You feel it. You see it. You acknowledge it. Maybe you're especially going to acknowledge when the wind is there, when you're walking against it, right? You walk against the Lord, and, and you'll, you'll know that, that he's there. Or if you sit long enough to just listen to him, you'll see it. And are, are, if you're humble and honest with yourself, you acknowledge God does exist. So a second question I want us to ask about prayer, and praying by faith and having intimacy with the Lord, is have you ever left the basic of praying by faith? Have you ever left the basic of praying by faith? You can think back on your life. I think a much harder question is, is to say, have I now left the basic of praying by faith? And again, we, we, we pause on that and know that there's great room for improvement and we're grateful for the time God has given us to improve in our prayer lives. So if we're going to talk about prayer, then we need to know that intimacy with God is closely linked to our prayers offered by faith. Intimacy with God is closely linked to our prayers offered by faith. We'll come back to the intimacy aspect of it. But first I want to talk about our prayers offered by faith to God. Prayers offered by faith to God. First, we have to believe that God exists. We have to believe God exists. We have to believe also that our prayers will be answered. Listen to James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to it. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. Surely you could put in there wisdom for how to pray. Give me knowledge, God, and, and, and how to increase my faith and trusting you more. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is tossed and packed and forth by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Then there's this strong conclusion here. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's a strong description of somebody who doesn't pray by faith, believing that he will receive it. And so we don't just believe. The world will talk to you about belief. But it's belief in God and trusting and knowing based on the history of who God is, based on the history of my testimony, and your testimony, knowing that God is faithful, he will answer our prayers. Second aspect of praying by faith is we're praying to God. Recognizing that God's word is written to you. It's not a record of revelation only. It is revelation in itself. God revealing himself to you through his written word. Likewise, we are talking back to God. Oftentimes, we, we have these phrases that we say that I think are worth thinking about, not just saying them. A lot of times we say, well, the Bible says, or Paul says. And that's fine to say that, say it myself, as long as we understand what we mean by that, as long as we understand that the Scriptures are God's inspired Word, as long as we understand that it's God speaking to you individually as well as to His people. In Hebrews, there's this great uh, line that the author of Hebrews uh, says, is that uh, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As the whole, he's quoting the Old Testament, the Psalms, and he says, as the Holy Spirit says. It's really, it's encouraging. Do, do we, when we say the Bible says, when we say Paul says, do we understand that with all the force of what that means? That the authority of Christ was given to the apostles, and it's written right down here as the authority of the church, and it's given to you, and as the Holy Spirit says. There's also some phrases 
that we say that I think are, are, are helpful. Um, one phrase is, is don't worship worship. I heard that a few years ago, and, and too often we're excited about worship. Well, are we excited about worshiping God, as in our prayers are to God, as in we worship God, right? This is oftentimes why we close our eyes to, to eliminate the distractions. Why in church we train our children to look forward and not around at the people, right? Anybody guilty? Still guilty of that? Okay. Um, we're looking forward. We're looking or down at God's word. Um, but knowing that we also pray to God. We pray to God. It's not just prayer, but it's, it's prayer to God. David Platt uh, has a, had a phrase once that was pretty catching. And these, these catchy phrases sometimes kind of get, grab our attention. And he said, there's no power in prayer. There's no power in prayer. And you're like, all right, sign me up for Heresy 101. Makes a great first chapter, right? Then he illustrated it by saying it's kind of like this, this bucket going down a well or whatever you're picking up. You go down that well and then you pull it back up. Where's the power in this? It's not in the bucket, and oftentimes we think it's in the rope, which could represent prayer. But where is the power? It's in me pulling it up. It's in God receiving our prayers. And when he explained that to me, it helped me so much. Because too often I'm guilty of worshiping worship, a perfect worship session where the words are right and the music's right. I mean, Matt thinks about this all the time, the worship team, right? But, but we also know, based on our theology that, that the Lord has given us in the Word, that we're not here to worship worship. We're not perfect. And, and there's nothing such thing as perfect worship, right? But who's perfect? God is perfect, and that's who we're worshiping. Likewise, when we pray, it just makes a big difference to know that there's no power in prayer. When we say it like that, and when we mean and when we understand that, that the power is in God. Moses was certainly a man of prayer, interacting with God face to face. And just listen to this one particular verse in Numbers 14, where the people are rebelling. Okay? God has saved his people out of Egypt. They're rebelling against God, not wanting to go into the promised land. Are you serious? I brought you out here to go to the promised land. Go, right? So God tells Moses, I'm, I'm just going to make you into a great nation. And then God uses Moses' prayer and, and teaches us that, well, for God's glory, it can't happen because he made promises to Abraham and to his seed, not to Moses and, um, and his line, but it, it was specifically to Abraham, of whom he would make a great nation, um, and it wasn't just one man. I want you to listen to this one particular prayer that Moses says in verse, chapter 14, verse 18, sorry, 14, 17 of Moses' prayer to the Lord, he says, And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. It's a great summary of his prayer. He's basing it on the promises of God, making his people into a great nation. But it emphasizes there that the power of the Lord. This is one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. Most effectual prayers. Elijah and Moses praying intimately with the Lord, face to face. But where is the power? It's in God. Likewise, there's no power in our faith. It is by grace through faith. But faith is obviously a very important thing. But we must emphasize that the faith is in God. But again, faith is an important thing. Praying by faith is an important thing. Faith is important. I say that there are three things necessary for salvation. The first is Jesus' death on the cross. But then to add to our book of heresy, chapter 2, I would say this. The death of Christ on the cross is not enough for your salvation. Now you're reading that, and you're like, you're hearing that, and you're like, wait a minute. How can you say with confidence and conviction, and, and it's not actually heresy, though it sounds like it, that the first tenet of salvation is to, and, and to say that the death of Christ on the cross is not enough for your salvation? Well, what are we missing? We're missing a resurrection. Okay? A lot of times, again, if we say the death of Christ, we often assume a resurrection. But a dead Savior doesn't work. You have to have a living Savior, right? You have to have both of those. Likewise, you need two things that go along with that. You need your sins taken away, but you also need 
the deposit of Christ's righteousness deposited into your spiritual bank account. And those two things can't happen. Your sins being taken away and Christ's righteousness being deposited to your spiritual bank account without these two things, the death of Christ and the resurrection of the Christ. But let's, let's just put an emphasis and a bold on, 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 this, on this heresy we're teaching, right? The death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is not enough for your salvation. What's the third thing that's required? And that is faith. Because if it's only these two, then it's automatic for everybody. And that's not the case. Not by any means. And so you need a Savior who's paid for your sins, but then also has credited his righteousness to you based on his death and his resurrection. But you also have to have faith in that, believing that your sins are worthy of death. And that in that finite amount of time, somehow in those six hours, Jesus Christ paid the death penalty for your sins, taking your place. So we believe God exists, and we pray to him by faith. I do want to spend most of our time today, though, focusing on intimacy with God, which is closely linked to our prayers offered by faith. Intimacy with God is closely linked to our prayers offered by faith. The first thing is to see that the gospel, I'm sorry, not the gospel, the book of 1 John reminds us that we, we are called to be holy and that we are holy. So we are holy in Christ and we're also called to be holy. And there's a familiar passage in 1 John that describes what holiness is um, as, as not being worldly, as not just going along with this world's system. And if we're going to be intimate with the, with the Lord, we can't be friends with this, with this world. If you're friends with the world, James 4.4 4 says, then you're considered acting like an adulteress. But 1 John is, is a basic of the faith. Okay? 1 John being, being the, 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 the book you should read after you read some of the Gospels and know the Gospels intimacy, intimately. 1 John is, is a basic. And that intimacy is represented by not going along with the world. Listen to 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and there's three things here, the desires of the flesh, representing gratification of the flesh, being selfish, the desires of the eyes, which we see vividly explained in Genesis 3. Go back and read that account in detail. Study it for just 10 minutes, and you'll see how it all started with Eve looking somewhere. So the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the arrogance of life, meaning the pride of possessions. These things take away our intimacy with the Lord. And they are not from the Father, they are from the world. And it's not that we can't use these things. That's not necessarily the topic of today's sermon. Okay? We could go to Ecclesiastes or other places and talk about exercising your dominion in the world. Okay? There's some things that I love in this world. Okay? I'm actually extremely rich with eggs at home. and I, I got like so many eggs at home. Uh, we got Kate, my daughter's got, got a lot of chickens. and uh, I take great pride in that. Like, I feel like, um, like I'm better than y'all because I got a lot of eggs. Okay? <laughs> like, I mean, and, and you'll forgive me of that because you're like, well, fine, you can consider yourself better than me because you've got you know, blue eggs at home and big eggs and little eggs and whatever. But there comes a point where, where it can become an idol. And when it becomes an idol, the love of it, more than the love of God, it destroys our intimacy with him. Because what are we called to seek first? Jesus' first public sermon, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, all these things will be given to you as well. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. Whatever does the will of God abides forever. And so if we're going to have intimacy, we've got to have holiness, which, is, which has a two-part definition, being set apart and pure. Set apart and pure. Not going, the opposite of that is worldliness. If we're going to have intimacy with the Lord, we've got to understand the basics of the gospel. We've got to understand the basics of forgiveness of sins. 
We've got to understand the basics of what 1 John talks about in confessing our sins. And then God who is able to cleanse us of our righteousness. Remember talking to somebody once, secondhand story of somebody who didn't want to go to church on Sunday because they had sinned so much that week. And I'm guessing it's not as much as that they sinned, it's as much as that they weren't willing to give it up, right? We come to church every week not because we are great sinners, wanting God to correct us of that, wanting God's Spirit to convict us of that. So we've got to have a, a solid understanding of confessing our sins to the Lord. Kind of a rabbit trail that, that I didn't have time to explore and I think is probably very complicated. Um, intimacy with the Lord. Uh, I'm, I'm curious what that looks like in the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. Because, you know, we see, we're told, we, we see that Moses is a man of prayer. We're, we see at the conclusion of James that Elijah is a man of prayer, but it says he has a nature just like ours. Those men seem to have prayed face to face with God. But I'm in the New Covenant. I have the Spirit living inside of me, not just with me. So it seems that our prayer lives should be greater than those men somehow. I don't understand that full difference, but it's kind of a side note. Um, because it says that Moses prayed to the Lord face to face. And if I'm a New Covenant Christian, if the, if the New Covenant is better than the, new, than the Old Covenant, which Hebrews tells us, how can I pray better than face to face with God? I guess the answer is by faith, right? Um, by faith, recognizing it's not a text message, it's not a phone call, it's not FaceTime, but realize that, that I have access to the throne of God um, through Christ, through the Spirit. Kind of a side note, um, something I'm, I'm kind of wondering about, but truly believe uh, that, that the new covenant is better than the old covenant and that, that it should affect our prayers somehow. Hopefully we can grow into that somehow. There's a strong verse dealing with intimacy in uh, 1 Peter 3, 7, where it's talking about the relationship of husbands and wives. And here, you have your prayer life linked with your ability to live at peace with all men. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men, Romans 12 tells us, or Romans 13. And it is explained here in 1 Peter 3, 7. Let me read it to you. It says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel or the more delicate vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And so, while prayers by faith to God may seem to be pretty spiritual, very much grounded, yes, in your intimacy with the Lord, but represented by your intimacy within the family. And if there's not peace within the family, it sure does make it hard to pray, doesn't it? Because you're just so angry, right? You're so unpeaceable. And so my goal is here not to go through 1 Peter 3, 7 and see how husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor the woman as the more delicate vessel or the weaker vessel, but knowing that they are heirs with you of the grace of life, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And I love the illustration of that when a husband and wife sit together on a Sunday morning and there's, there's no one who's better than another person. You're both equally submitting to God's Word. And there's a reset button on that every single week as you hear the Word preached and as you take the Lord's Supper as often as you come together to do that. As heirs with you so that your prayers may not be hindered. Listen to uh, Psalm 66, 18 and 19. Psalm 66, 18 and 19. You don't have to turn there, but you can listen there. It enforces this. Uh, I'm going to start 66, 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. Verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. So there needs to be some peace with, within the family, specifically between husbands and wives. 
But I want to spend most of our time today in uh, Luke chapter 10 or 11. Let's see which one it is. First, Luke chapter 10. You'll turn to Luke chapter 10 if you have your Bibles. I believe we have here a description of intimacy with the Lord followed by instructions on prayer. And I find that very significant. As I thought about this sermon on prayer, I knew that sitting at Jesus' feet was important. So I found Luke chapter 10 and I just followed the path that was there before me, knowing that the context of a particular passage is key and critical for understanding it. And so we're, we're instructed about intimacy with the Lord, listening to the Lord, sitting at Jesus' feet, and then we're instructed about prayer. I'm going to read to us Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. But now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him, that is Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Truly in a, a modern Western American culture, which I'm a part of, which I love in many respects, as, as a part of that culture, though, th this speaks volumes to us, who are a busy people busy with serving, busy with distracting, busy even with good things. And there's a statement, there's a phrase that, that I just stand in awe at all the, every time I hear it, because I just fully, I just wish I understood it better, that, that the good is the enemy of the best. The good is the enemy of the best. Was, was Martha doing bad things? No. Actually, do you know who she was serving? Jesus Christ himself. She was serving him. And in that instance, better than serving him was getting to know him, being with him, sitting at his feet, which we do by opening up God's word on our own, by praying, by faith, by meditating on God's word, and indeed even by submitting to it uh, as, a, as a group gathered together. It seems like a pretty self-explanatory passage, doesn't it? And we should ask ourselves, may the Holy Spirit guide you in answering the questions that are being prompted to you in this passage. Am I sitting at Jesus' feet? Am I distracted even by good things? But it then does add that her attitude is one of anxiety and being troubled. One of anxiety and being troubled. But you know, as Jesus spoke to Martha very clearly, he also speaks very clearly to you as he guides each one of us every single week of our lives. He will convict us of our sins. He will guide us into the path everlasting. And he will keep us on that narrow path. I take such security in knowing that I'm on that narrow path and that I'm still there. That I plan to be by faith till the day that I die. That'll only happen as God's Word is a spotlight into my soul. With the Word of God in front of me and the Spirit of God inside of me, I can walk by faith through anything in life. And if it's going to be victorious, I have to understand that sometimes that victory, maybe more often that victory is in weakness. As we are strong, when we are weak, we're reminded, as Paul says, right? as the Holy Spirit says through Paul. But I then want to move on to, to, to understand praying by faith and go through Luke chapter 11 as Jesus then instructs on prayer. As this section on prayer 
is right after having what I'm going to describe as intimacy with the Lord, as sitting at Jesus' feet, feasting on His Word, not worrying about serving a perfect meal or having a perfect house inside or outside, but knowing that, yeah, people come first before tasks, something I have to be reprogrammed for by every six hours. But knowing also that we are called to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. This basic of the faith that we teach children that we are never to leave. And so we see here that in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 of Luke, Jesus was praying in a certain place, probably a particular place. He probably had patterns of prayer. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So Jesus proceeds to give him a truncated version of the Lord's Prayer. We went through a few months ago. You could find it also in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uh, 7, I believe. But notice here that, that Jesus teaches them here. He gives them words to pray, but all along, he's already been teaching them, right? They've already heard the Sermon on the Mount. This probably isn't a, a version from the, the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus teaching them again. Just like we need to be taught things over and over again. Sometimes basic things. But, but how was he already teaching them to pray? What was he just doing? He was praying. They were observing his life. They knew to be men of prayer as they spent time with Christ. They saw that he was constantly praying. In fact, his pattern of prayer and worship and intimacy with God was so familiar that that's where Judas knew he would be. In order to betray him, he knew he'd be in the garden doing what? Praying. Where he went, it was as was his habit. So we are indeed disciples of Christ. We do follow him. And if anybody follows us, we say, as Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. It gives them the Lord's Prayer. Not my intention to go over that today. We went over that previously. This is a truncated version of it. Just a little bit shorter. So it's okay to just pray one phrase of the Lord's Prayer. You don't have to pray the whole thing every time, right? Then he goes on to explain, as, as uh, we read earlier, someone knocking at the door, someone, someone persisting. The primary point here isn't to delve necessarily into all the details as much as it is to see that we are to be persistent in prayer. We are to keep on asking. Now, that doesn't mean there are some things that we don't stop praying for. Okay? There are some things in our lives that we, we may have gotten an answer from the Lord. We may have been satisfied with his answer of no. Paul prayed three times for one particular thing. You let the Spirit of God lead you in that, but here the point is, don't give up in praying for certain things. Because it says here, to ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Everyone, in verse 10, everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. Doesn't this remind us of what we read about in the beginning of James? Ask, believing that you will receive it. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then he says that God is good. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? Matthew says, in the version in the Sermon on the Mount, it's good gifts. But the contrast here is us who are evil. Isn't it interesting that he describes us as evil here? Why would you describe a father as evil? Even though he's evil, he's giving good things to his kid, right? Well, again, the, the foundation of the scriptures is, of course, Genesis, maybe especially the first 12 chapters or so. And, and the bookends of the flood contain these phrases that describe man's heart and his thoughts as continuously evil before and after the flood. It's described there. I think it's there to say that, yes, God has limited evil, like we talked about last time, and God limiting our suffering. And although the flood has happened, although God has limited evil, he's destroyed this plan of them building... I'm sorry, that's, that's later. We talked about that in Sunday school, not the Bower, Tower of Babel. He, uh, every man was living long. He was living 800 years or more. He had 800 years to do evil. 
And man's heart is still evil, but, but how long does he have for evil now? Just 100 years on average, right? 80 years, however long the Lord gives us to live. But God has limited that evil. Of course, especially he's limited that evil in the cross. We went over some of those details last time. But knowing that, that, that there's still evil in our hearts. I mean, um, I described something in Sunday school today saying that um, when I taught a lesson once, there was a little bit of sin in it. Everyone laughed a little bit. Um, but I truly understand that, that, that anything that we do isn't going to have 100% pure motives in it. Anything that we do is going to have some sin in it. There's nothing that we do that, that's perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. And so sometimes we do something that's good, but maybe there's a false motive going on. Maybe we got angry for just a split second in the midst of it. I don't know what's going on. But that doesn't mean that we don't do good things. And as a, a parent prays for their child and gives them good things, so much more does God give us good things, in particular here, the Holy Spirit. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God is willing to give us the Holy Spirit, certainly he's willing to give us the things that are talked about up top here, which is just food and bread and our necessities in life. It may help just to summarize. To, let me read the, the passage in Matthew. Listen to it from the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give here good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And I think Jesus is recalling that he taught that previously. But I think he's getting a little excited here. I think he's like, I'm not saying good gifts this time. What's he going to say this time? The Holy Spirit. He is getting excited about the ministry that the Lord has given him. He's knowing that he's ushering in the new covenant. That he's living his life and his ministry that God has given him on earth. And he is excited about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is upon you and it is increasing. And as you look at the Holy Spirit throughout the Gospels, you type Holy Spirit on a word search and you see that it's not just in one particular spot, it's all throughout it, even from the very beginning of Jesus' virgin birth. Filled by the Holy Spirit. That word only used three times in two texts in the Old Testament is all over the place. Because the Holy Spirit isn't now just with His people, He is in His people. Jesus' ministry is a little bit like a bell curve, I was told once. He started out, He got really popular, and then He got very unpopular, right? And John, we're reminded that there, there, He says, you know, eat my flesh, drink my blood. People are like, I'm not hanging around to see what that means. I'm out of here. They just wanted more fish, more fresh fish and good bread. I mean, I had that, I think, last night for dinner. It was amazing. They, did, they just wanted that. They didn't want to stick around to ask Jesus long enough to sit at his feet. Say, what do you mean by that? But I think that here in Luke 11, it seems that Jesus is in the pinnacle of his ministry. He's in this in this three and a half years of his ministry, seems to be very excited. He seems to be in the, in the momentum building aspect of his ministry. We can look back at Luke chapter 10 and see that he just sent out the 72 for ministry. And then I want to read to you Jesus' response in verse 21. You know, but let me first comment. Really, one of my most favorite verses in the Bible is Luke 10, 20. Because Jesus says to rejoice especially that your names are written in heaven. More than anything else worthy of rejoicing over is that your name is written in heaven. And that's the only guarantee we have. That is where our security comes from. That is where our significance comes from. Knowing that with the Word of God in front of us, the Spirit of God inside of us, which means the Word of God is also going to be inside of us, right? As we meditate on it. 
We can handle whatever life throws at us. Because my name is written in heaven. But listen to Jesus' joy about this. Okay, That should be joyful for us. But listen to Jesus getting super excited in verses 21 through 24 of Luke 10. In that same hour, he rejoiced in who? In the Holy Spirit. He said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This isn't just Jesus getting excited. He's getting excited in the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, his ministry being empowered by the Holy Spirit, which he will soon in a few chapters breathe on his, whole, on his disciples to give them the Holy Spirit, kind of a preview of what's coming up in, in Acts with the Holy Spirit being unleashed on the church. That is you and me. And this is the ultimate best gift that we are given. This is even what we are to pray for. Because it seems kind of like a weird conclusion. We have this whole talking about praying, the Lord's Prayer, being taught to pray in Luke 11, being persistent in prayer. Then you have this, this line that seems to be dropped out of nowhere, how much more will your Heavenly Father give? Not good gifts, but the Holy Spirit. So this has in mind, first and foremost, the indwelling Holy Spirit in your life. When you become a believer, recognizing those three tenets of the Gospel, His death, resurrection, you having faith in that, and all three of those, Holy Spirit sets up shop inside of you and abides inside of us. But there's also a filling with the Holy Spirit we could call a greater measure of His Spirit. Just walking in His Spirit. And while Romans 8 gives you instructions on how to live by the Spirit, while Galatians 5 says to walk by the Spirit, and it tells you how to do that. It's giving you instructions. Here, in Luke 11, we are to pray for the Holy Spirit to guide our lives. And that's the emphasis here, this balance that, yes, you have a responsibility to walk in the Spirit. You have a responsibility, according to Galatians 5 and Genesis 4, you have a responsibility to say no to sin. There's all these instructions and this truth that is so necessary. You have a responsibility to walk in the Spirit and to use your spiritual gifts in the local church, in the kingdom of God. And those instructions are given in Romans 8 and Galatians 5. But here, we're praying for the good gift of the Holy Spirit. For His anointing and His guidance. And it's helpful as we talk about God leading us and guiding us, it's helpful to use those particular phrases that God led me as opposed to saying, God said to me, okay? If you want to say, God said to me, I think we know what you mean. You read God's word and God led you, right? We don't mean that there was an audible voice and that God said to you, right? God said to you. How does God speak to you? There's one answer in the word. Maybe it's a phrase, the word of God in front of you, the spirit of God inside of you, okay? That doesn't mean that, that the Holy Spirit's not going to lead you into one particular ministry or another, or in the details of your life that you're praying about. But we really can't say that God said to me as opposed to God led me. He led me by His Spirit. He guided me by His Spirit. But, you know, sometimes maybe we could even say, did God speak to you about that? And, and sometimes somebody says, no, it was stronger. <laughs> because God's presence is there with you as the Spirit abides inside of you. Isn't that a, isn't, that's, a, that's a crazy statement to be able to say, well, no, God didn't say it. It was stronger than Him saying to me because His presence is here with me. 
Let's finish our time by looking at uh, John chapter 16. Seeing how Jesus, being excited about the Holy Spirit, is now teaching about the Holy Spirit. This is whom we are to pray for, for his, certainly for, for his anointing, for his filling, for his guidance, and depending upon him. And based on John 16, 7 through 15, I hope you'll be encouraged by being told that the Holy Spirit is your primary teacher. That the Holy Spirit is your primary teacher. Why do we say the Holy Spirit is your primary teacher? Well, He's the one that wrote the Word. He's the one that inspired the Word. He's the one that interprets it for you. And how are you ever going to understand the words of Jesus if you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you? And so the words in red are, are helpful just to see who's talking, okay? But some Bibles don't have the words in red so that you don't get confused and think that the words in red are more important than the words that are written in, in black. All of God's Word is all of God's Word. The words in red are not more important than the ones in black, okay? The Holy Spirit is our primary teacher. And I hope this encourages you so that you will understand what 1 John says is that you won't need anybody to teach you. It doesn't mean there won't be pastors and teachers and parents in your life. But that the Holy Spirit is your primary teacher with the Word of God in front of you. And most of what I've learned in life, nobody's taught it to me. I learned it by reading God's Word, spending time in it for myself. That doesn't mean I've had great teachers who have guided me. And maybe their 25% of teaching is awesome. But who's taught you what you've learned? You've read God's Word. Who is your primary teacher? The Holy Spirit. You have the ability to interpret God's Word. You have the ability to interpret God's Word based on the authoritative presence of the Spirit of God within you who leads us to the words of Christ and to access to the Father. Listen, Jesus' strong words in John 16, verses 7 through 15. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, that is, the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you, and so will the Father, we learn other places. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. You will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He's going to be sending them later by the Holy Spirit. Jesus couldn't teach everybody at one time on earth. He was physically limited in his capacity right then and there. He couldn't be everywhere at once in his bodily form. But he ascends to heaven, and the Father and the Son, 50 days later, send who? The Holy Spirit. 10 days later. 50 days after the resurrection. So that he can teach the church. He can teach you. Verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. John 14, 26 says he will teach you all things. 14, 26. He will teach you all things. That's specifically talking to the disciples and the apostles. But it's there here in front of us to teach us all things. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. And he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he, that is the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. And you have a Trinitarian aspect there. But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who have existed in an eternal loving relationship for all of eternity, here working together for God's glory, for our good. All the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so if we're going to talk about prayer, we need to talk about having intimacy with the Lord. Jesus concludes his section of prayer in Luke 11 about asking for the Holy Spirit. And so should we pray 
to be guided by the Holy Spirit. So should we pray to rely on the Holy Spirit in our prayers. So, let's conclude our time by praying that prayer, knowing that when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, as we just read here in John 16, what does He bring? He brings light to the conviction of sin in your life. And that joy happens because we have a true understanding of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to show up at church even though I sin every single week. Because I'm here to to ask for that forgiveness. Because the Holy Spirit has guided us in the conviction of sin. He has shown it to us. As we live our lives longer, it seems that conviction gets tighter and tighter as we grow in sanctification. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for sending your Son to live his life here on earth for his teachings, for his miracles, for the, especially the miracle of the cross, for the miracle of the resurrection, for the fact that, Jesus, you went up to heaven so that you would send the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. As we have your word in front of us and your spirit inside of us, Lord, that is all we need. You have written our names in the book of life and we have that sure conviction, that sure hope, that sure faith that that is true. We pray that you would hold our feet fast to that narrow path and we pray, God, that you would give us an outpouring of your spirit in our lives and in our church. Yet, Lord, we do so with a little bit of trepidation, maybe a lot, knowing that that joy happens as a result of repentance. Repentance of our sins, both great and small, of our willful sins and of our sins that we don't even know that we commit, of our hidden sins. So we pray, Spirit, these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.